Formula One returns to the lands down under this weekend and after two very exciting races to start the season off. Charles Leclerc taking the first race out in Bahrain, Max Verstappen winning out in Jeddah. This is shaping up to be a fantastic season and plenty of course to discuss not only with the Verstappen and Leclerc battle but Lewis Hamilton not having the best of times out in Jeddah last time out. It's going to be an exciting season indeed as we go down under for the first time as well since 2019. This is going to be a fantastic weekend. We're going to preview that plus look back at everything that happens in Saudi Arabia here on the Armchair F1 podcast. The Armchair F1 podcast is back. You are listening to our fourth episode of our second season. And well, the first three, it's fair to say, quite a lot to discuss. Of course, in this new age of Formula One, the two races we've had so far, there's still at least, I say at least 20 to go. There may be a 21st being added in the coming weeks with Qatar, we understand, coming back onto the calendar towards the end of the season. This is shaping up to be a really exciting season. So, Make sure to like the podcast, subscribe, follow wherever you are on social media, on all major streaming platforms. We're going to be with you throughout the season. Um, You've noticed, of course, at the moment we've had weekly releases of the podcast. Well, my um, academic life, shall we say, is catching up with me slightly. So we will be going bi-weekly for the next couple of weeks. We will be covering basically every race, nothing more than that for a little bit, but This is an exciting season and we're still going to be making every effort to cover that. But again, like, follow, subscribe to the podcast. Much more to come in 2022 and much more. Again, one of the great things about 2022 with the pandemic moving behind us now, we're starting to go back to some of the tracks we haven't seen in the last few years. We're getting one of them this weekend in Albert Park, Melbourne, Australia. So excited to see the return of the Australian Grand Prix. It's, well, it's a race that when it delivers it delivers and hopefully with you know all of the exciting drama we've seen from the start of the season whether it be at the front Max Verstappen shoulder Claire seemingly well you say seemingly taking the lead out front of course Verstappen's retirement in in Bahrain putting him 20 18 points behind the Claire coming into Australia but certainly setting the scene for that battle there of course a really interesting intra-team battle between Ferrari and Rebel 2 plus a big shake-up of the order we're seeing Mercedes we said it last time out, Mercedes maybe in not so much trouble as we thought after Bahrain. Well, judging by Lewis Hamilton's weekend in Saudi Arabia, maybe, maybe they're in a little bit more trouble than we thought. So we're going to be talking about that. Plus the general midfield battle. What else we can expect as we head to the land down under? In the meantime, though, let's welcome on my guest for this week. Joe Spagnoli joins us again. Joe, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again. We had a decent race at the Jeddah Corniche circuit. This wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> that track is an absolute abomination and it's still a death trap. But yeah, we had a decent race at Jeddah. If if we can get decent races here, we can get them anywhere with these new cars. I mean, even a good race in Catalonia. That, that, that may be the true standard of whether these cars have worked. And we'll get to see that next month as well. So maybe this is a good omen. Who knows? Anyway, also joining us this week, Dylan McKee is back. Dylan, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, it's good to be back. And I'm liking the optimism, the optimism about some good races to come. That's that's promising. Let's face it, there's not much else to be optimistic about in 2022, so I'm going to make the most of it with the F1. I'm very optimistic about this season, and the first couple of races have left me... It's left me really with a mouth-watering feeling about the rest of the season. I'm excited 
And just let's go back to that battle at the front. I mean, we've been treated to two really strong battle royales between Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc so far this season. In Jeddah, we saw it turn out the other way from Bahrain. Charles Leclerc won first time out. Max Verstappen took the victory this time out in Jeddah. Again, we saw some really good tricks with DRS as well. A really, I'd say a good gamesmanship between the two of them and a very strong tactical awareness with things like DRS, for example, knowing when to make the overtakes. And a real, again, a really, I think, a strong aggression, I think, between the two of them. But again, some very fair racing. We are only at the start of the season. So there's really potential for this to spill over into the on and off track intensity that we saw between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. But Dylan, certainly Verstappen and Leclerc seem to have set their stalls out very early. And this has the hallmarks of a very good battle this season. Yeah, the two seem to be very closely matched so far. And I think it's interesting that we've sort of seen this title challenge set up to be Leclerc versus Verstappen so early on in the season. But like you said, they are they are the two front runners at the moment and they do seem to be in a league of their own. A league of their own indeed. Joe, I've been impressed with I mean Leclerc we always knew was a very good driver. And we were always saying, just give him that machinery, he'll deliver. He he's been given the machinery and he's been delivering, and that's good. But for Stappen, you know, keeping on the form, winning his first world championship, it's always harder to win your second one than your first one. But he certainly set his stall out early and seems to be in with a very good chance of that. They are, I would say, certainly at least 2022, at least, a class ahead of the rest right now. They're a class ahead of even their teammates, which is slightly concerning, as as we'll get on to later. Sergio mm. Perez getting his first ever podium, and it's one of the longest, if not the longest, wait for a po- for, sorry for his first pole <laughs> position. Uh, his longest wait for a pole position in the history of Formula One, I think, in terms of individual drivers. Um, but also, like I know it's only two races in, but it's slightly concerning just how far ahead of Carlos Sainz Charles Leclerc seems to be in the public perception. I know Ferrari officially have no number one driver, but they may well need to change that pretty soon if they want to uh, stave off a Max Verstappen title fight. Yeah, I mean, just a lot of respect between the drivers and a very rare instance, dare I say, after, after last year where whoever won, I think they would have deserved it. Like I voted Leclerc driver of the day, but I don't have any issue with Verstappen's performance translating into a win. Great racing. Yeah, exactly. And it's that racing, and we've talked about this a lot in the last few years. F1 fans have been saying that that drivers need to be able to race hard, but there's also the sort of defining where the limits are. And particularly towards the end of 2021, there was a sense that the battle was approaching the edge of what the limits could be. Well, so far, we've seen some particularly, I'd say a good level of fair gamesmanship. And particularly, I, there was one moment in the race I think really stumped up. Not only, I'd say, just the intense driving and I would say the aggression, but certainly the the ability to race hard between the two drivers, but also that real tactical nous that separates good from great drivers. And that DRS zone coming into turn 27 into the final corner, literally seeing both Verstappen and Leclerc breaking to try and be the one to not get the DRS to try and be the one to get the DRS and not get there first is is almost like ducking and diving almost, which I think again, some people could say it's a bit arcadey, a bit sort of the kind of thing you'd see in league racing. But genuinely, it's there's a level of I think intelligence and appreciation for the two in this battle, which I think is going to make it really interesting to see. And Joe, I'll come back to you on this point. I mean, we're only two races in, and there's still a lot of potential 
for the order to still shift around a little bit. But certainly from what we're seeing so far, is there anyone else you think could really come into this battle who's showing the, not just the hard racing and the pace in the new cars, but showing the tactical now, showing the intelligence to really sustain a battle longer term in the season? You're talking about drivers here, I assume. Drivers, yes. The teams. Well, the, the only two that spring to mind on account of mm. just how far Mercedes seem to be off the boil at the moment, it's Carlos Sainz and Sergio Perez, the most obvious answers that there are. And that's based on their high race IQ, their greater experience in Formula One than either of their teammates. Um, and yeah, and the fact that they're, they've, they're seen as having race IQ and awareness, which is higher than their pace. And this, again, I said earlier, it's slightly concerning that we perceive Perez so far off the Stappen and yet he got his first pole position in Jeddah. I would, I'd be inclined to say Perez first. The Red Bull looks a lot better than it initially seemed in Bahrain. Um, but yeah, you need to translate that to a race result. And at least in Jeddah, that didn't happen. You can blame the safety car, but after that point, Verstappen was handily better than Perez on track. Yeah, and maybe you could make the argument that track position certainly compromised Perez in that scenario because he did look comfortable in the first stint. But again, Dylan, just maybe looking at those second drivers quickly, because obviously it's not just the Verstappen and Leclerc, it's also the two drivers, the teammates as well, not just thinking about the drivers' championship, but the constructors' championship as well. And we were saying many times in 2021, you know, would you rather have Bottas as Pe- or Perez as your teammate right now? Who would you rather have if you were in the Red Bull or Ferrari right now? Would you rather have Sergio Perez or Carlos Sainz as your teammate right now based upon what you've seen at the start of the season? So I think that's definitely a tricky question. I'm I'm a bit stumped as to who I would rather. I think I was just, I've been disappointed with how Carlos Sainz has performed so far this season. I did think he would be uh, quicker on the pace and I do hope that he can get more out of the car when it comes. And I think the the pace was there for Perez, like we saw on the Saturday, and he got his first pole. But then well, he just couldn't translate that into a win on the Sunday. And I'm not necessarily sure that that's completely down to just the safety car. Once he was down in fourth, there was no fight there. There was not, it sort of lacked the fieriness of uh, Verstappen's drive to the front. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a crucial point, certainly, that Perez had the opportunity. Okay, maybe the circumstances didn't conspire in his favour. But again, you've got to take these opportunities, especially if you want to be, you know, in consideration to be not only be in a championship fight, but get preference from the team as well, or he's get an equal status with the top driver. I mean, Joe, I, I, I would say, I think certainly with Dylan right now, I mean, Carlos Sainz has had a difficult first couple of races. I think there's no doubt about that but i would i would i would say this i would say perez is a very strong racer we've seen that throughout his career we saw it towards the end of last season as well but i do feel with perez i don't know if it's just his age i do feel with perez the only way for him is down i do think with carlos Sainz, he was close to the claire last season that's i think something to take into consideration I do think there's an improvement. He's going through a bit of a rut right now, but if you think back to 2020, for example, Carlos Sainz had a difficult start to the season. He ended up, you know, coming into his own in that second half of the season. So I would still rather be Carlos Sainz right now than Sergio Perez, although I would say marginally based on what we've seen in the first couple of races. Is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, I mean, direct comparisons based on two races. We've said it a million times over the first couple of episodes. We're going to say it a million more. 
very, very dubious, so we can't extrapolate too much. With Perez, you know, it's, it's worth pointing out that he's basically on a road onto nowhere with Red Bull. He's never going to be allowed to beat Verstappen if Verstappen is the first driver at the team. And this is realistically his last, his one and last big break in Formula One. Whereas with Carlos Sainz, he has the pretty enviable position of being quite young and also truly independent. So even if the Ferrari thing doesn't work out, and to be honest, I I, I still think it's going to, it's only been two races, hmm. he can still go more or less anywhere. Like if Mercedes feel the need to replace say if Lewis Hamilton was to retire out of nowhere, Carlos Sainz would be a very good appointment. And if Mercedes had the resources in the car to get him, or if Ferrari kicked him out, you know he'd take that move. He's been around half the teams on the grid already. So yeah, I mean, in terms of age, how he's perceived at the moment, especially like his overall race awareness, how he can string an entire race performance together lap after lap, I would go for Carlos Sainz. But again, that's based in general not over the first couple of races. Personally, I've never considered Sergio Perez to be in the upper echelons of Formula One drivers. Carlos Sainz, for me, has always been around that level. I might be being unfair, though. I wouldn't necessarily say it's unfair. And do you know what? The thing that was interesting with qualifying and that I, that I was thinking, so obviously, Verstappen and the Claire fighting on Sunday, that's kind of something we I think we're going to see a lot this season. It's almost something that we could say is part and parcel. When Sergio Perez got pole on Saturday, I was genuinely shocked more than anything. Shocked, almost somewhat bewildered. And I think the the whole thing is, again, it's 200, I think 210th race that Sergio Perez was waiting to get that pole position. And the fact it took so long, we of course say Sergio Perez is a fantastic racer. His race craft, particularly with tyre management, is exceptional. And of course, points are always won on Sunday. But, but even with that, the fact that I was shocked that a driver in one of the top two teams was getting pole position, I think says a lot, I think somewhat about A, the perceived competence of Perez in qualifying, but also I think the fact that, yeah, he is seen as just a second driver to Max Verstappen, who's not going to be the one out the front. So to see him getting pole position, especially this early on, it was shocking. It wasn't something I was expecting. And it was almost, I don't know, a little bit of me saying, oh, maybe is this Perez trying to put up some kind of fight to Verstappen that he won't be allowed to have. So I think it's very interesting. I think partly as well, it's the unpredictability of the 2022 cars and the fact that we don't really know what the order is still yet. Drivers are still getting used to it, as we've clearly seen further down the grid, which we'll be coming on to very shortly. But to round off everything that's going on off at the front at the moment with Verstappen and Leclerc, Perez and Sainz, Ferrari and Red Bull, these two teams certainly seem to have taken the lead from the start of the season. Now, as we've seen from 2009, for example, when you have a regulation change of such significance, particularly aerodynamically, the order will shift around at the front of the season. But generally, these two teams are going to stay out front. Is there anything you would, as the team bosses maybe right now in Ferrari and Red Bull, be saying to the drivers? Any kind of strategies that you may be thinking? Any Are you already from the first two races saying you're going to preference for Stappen and Leclerc, because I would say certainly right now, and certainly based upon that qualifying performance from Perez in Saudi Arabia, I would say if you were being fair about it, it's maybe too presumptive at this time to say who's going to be out front of those two drivers, or at least put team orders in right now, even if Verstappen and Leclerc are probably likely to emerge as the leaders of that team this season. I'd say right now it's still too presumptive to say that. Is that something, Dylan, that you would agree with 
Or would you be saying right now, based on what we've seen early on, we need to be putting all our efforts into these two drivers? I would definitely say it's presumptive. I mean, if we look at Albert Park now this weekend and then see Perez or Sainz go and win that race with a five-second lead, the narrative completely shifts, completely Mm. changes. And there aren't that many points on the board yet, especially on the Red Bull side. So it's definitely too early to say. And I think I'd also be wary of how the cars develop. I think the sort of big first update packages that come in maybe Imola and afterwards, I think they may be able to change the order significantly and also change how the car drives itself, depending on setup and things like that. Well, uh, same question to you, Joe. Are we being too presumptive of a Verstappen, Leclerc battle at the front this season? Uh, Particularly, I'd say more in the case of Ferrari, maybe with Carlos Sainz. Are we being too presumptive this early on? Already sounding like a broken record, it is too early to say definitively. However, my one caveat would be I think it's probably easier to one-two your drivers if you're Red Bull on account of the fact they've actually been here before with this driver partnership competing for a championship. And at least on the driver front, it worked, putting Verstappen as a clear number one. The issue being, of course, that Perez was nowhere near Verstappen last year. This year, he seems to have like halved the qualifying gap, if not if if not if not improved it further. Um, with Ferrari, obviously, they haven't really been in that ultra competitive position. As Dylan says, if Carlos Sainz takes pole and leads in the Australian Grand Prix, there is no competitive justification to prioritize Leclerc's race over his. In no small part because I know it's only two races in, Sainz is ahead of Verstappen in the championship. It is completely unfair to say that he could not also be a rival of Verstappen. With that said, I'm still following the logic that it's going to be Verstappen versus Leclerc. And I think in many ways that sums up, I think, the expectations of fans for a number of years, particularly with the way that both of them have sort of been groomed as the next big stars of both of those teams. But certainly, if there's one thing we could take from the first couple of races, and history certainly certainly dictates to us as well, is that Ferrari do know how to lose a championship from a seemingly advantageous position. So... Maybe that's another prophecy we can look forward to later this season. But one team that need, doesn't need a prophecy, frankly needs a miracle right now, is Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton. We're going to be talking about all of their struggles next. Right, Dylan, Joe, I've got a question for the both of you. Um So the 2022 Saudi Arabian Grand Prix was the first time since which race that Lewis Hamilton was eliminated in Q1, not as the result of a mechanical issue, a crash, or McLaren being unable to tell the Malaysian weather and sending him out when it's too wet. Joe's put his hand up immediately. Joe, I feel you know the answer. Silverstone 2009. Indeed, which is also a race that I went to. It's the only F1 race I've actually ever physically been to in my life as well so maybe i'm maybe this is a sign i'm due to go to silverstone this year but a very difficult weekend for lewis hamilton almost unexpected lance stroll knocking lewis hamilton out of qualifying at the end of q1 a performance that mercedes lewis hamilton no one no one could explain the struggles of lewis hamilton again you'd think lewis in his typical form after a bad qualifying would go through have a storming race rise up to sixth. Indeed, George Russell coming home in the end in fifth place certainly shows that the Mercedes car, again, we were saying after Bahrain, 
was, if it was, seemingly the third fastest car. Nowhere near the top two, but certainly better than the rest. And George Russell certainly put pay to the suggestion that it was. Lewis Hamilton could only get his Mercedes from 16th to 10th. Even he was in shock. He asked Bono at the end of the race whether you score points for 10th place. He hasn't finished in 10th since the 2012 Korean Grand Prix. Nearly a decade ago. This is frankly extraordinary just to see Lewis Hamilton in this position right now. And again, a month ago, Lewis Hamilton was very bullish after all the struggles and the way 2021 ended for him in Abu Dhabi. This is going to be the season like no other. He was saying that he was going to come back and show what he was made of. Well, if this is what Lewis Hamilton's made of in 2022, as a Lewis fan, I am massively concerned. Joe, Mercedes, they're in trouble at the moment. And we were saying last time out, is it the result of the car? Is it the engine? Is it the aerodynamic design? Are we any closer to working out what it is that's holding back Mercedes and especially Lewis Hamilton after Jeddah? Well, one thing's abundantly clear. All of the LH44 and Mercedes radicals that were suggesting, you know, it's only a couple of upgrades. They're going to find them very quickly. That is clearly not the case. This car does this. There are several key departments where this car looks deficient relative to Red Bull and Ferrari. Obviously, it's critical. We say people say, oh, they're not really in trouble. They're third. By Mercedes standards, that is trouble. We just have to accept that reality because it's not just that they're the third fastest. It's that, relatively speaking, they're nowhere near the cars in first and second. And Although, luckily, they're isolated above the mid-pack. Um, I said after Bahrain that the early fears about the power unit were pretty unfair on account of the fact that blame, you know, drawing too many conclusions from Aston Martin and Williams being bad is just stupidity because those teams historically, well, recent history, they are bad. But after Jeddah with a much lower rear wing, the speed trap tells the only story you need to know. Mercedes, at least in pure power, do not have the best power unit at the moment. And that is going to be afflicting every single customer team they have. I mean, just as for Lewis, though, he can't escape criticism for this. A, a lot of people have said it was a setup problem. And of course it was. His deficit to Russell was somewhere in the region of seven tenths. But there is another school of motorsport, which says there's only one person who can set up the car, that's the driver. So Lewis has to take at least some of the criticism for how badly Mercedes got it wrong at the Jeddah Corniche circuit. Yeah, and I mean, I have the speed trap up here, and this, I think, is really interesting. So this, is this I've, I've just gone on Reddit. This is the extent of which I've gone to try and find the speed trap. So um, Perez and Verstappen out front in the speed trap. Interesting, just on, just on the registered speeds alone, uh, nearly a whole four or five kilometers quicker than any other driver in the speed traps. Magnussen next fastest, Gasly the next fastest after that. But let's go upwards. So Yuki Tsunoda doesn't count, obviously, for the mechanical problems he's having. But let's start up from qualifying from 19th upwards. And I'm just going to read you the engine supplier. Mercedes for Daniel Ricciardo. Mercedes for Lando Norris. Mercedes for Lewis Hamilton. Mercedes for Nicholas Latifi. Mercedes again for Nico Hülkenberg. Renault for Esteban Ocon. So you think it's getting good. Mercedes for Lance Stroll. And literally, 
The highest placed Mercedes powered car in the speed trap was George Russell and Alexander Albon, who were ninth and 10th. Which, considering Mercedes back from 2014, this was the power unit that was the fastest, the one that everyone wanted. Literally, it's Honda Power seems to be, certainly if you judge by the speed traps in Jeddah, Honda Power seems to be the fastest. Ferrari not so far behind that. Renault sort of middling. Mercedes just so far down. And it's something almost still. And you, this is just a whole new territory for Mercedes. Not only have they had the aerodynamic issues, the porpoising is a particularly uniquely bad issue for Mercedes, it seems. But this issue with the powertrains, that is something that's not going to be a quick fix. No, definitely not, especially with the budget cap that's come in this year. I think it is a big problem and they are going to have a big problem fixing it. And not only is it not good enough for them, it's not good enough for any of their customer teams who will begin to look mm. elsewhere if they want to be competitive and this doesn't get fixed. So I think very worrying for them. But I think saying, you know, Lewis Hamilton got a point at the end of this Grand Prix is in no way a saving grace. You just have to look at the fact that only 13 cars finished that race. And the DNFs included the Haas, the two Alfa Romeos, uh, who most likely would have finished ahead of Hamilton with the pace he had in that race. So I think a really shambolic weekend from Mercedes as a whole. Shambles, I think, is just the the kindest way, perhaps, to describe it almost. And it's the fact as well, not only with the, just sticking on the point of the engine quickly, with the engine freeze coming in as well, before 2026 Mercedes can't fix this this isn't a problem that's gonna that they can fix in a couple of years this is a problem that's going to be affecting them for a long time they can't just do a Honda and you know leave McLaren and their engines suddenly turn out to be very good they're going to be in trouble so I guess the question is now firstly where do Mercedes go from here there's obviously the engine upgrades that they need to bring but you were mentioning this as well Joe that there are aerodynamic upgrades that Mercedes need to make Porpoising seems to be something that is affecting Mercedes more than any other team. And Lewis Hamilton has been visibly unhappy about this. George Russell, to a certain extent, as well. W- what can Mercedes really do? Because obviously we know that they're looking at sorting out the aerodynamics with the Venturis, but this is an issue that's going to, that's not necessarily as easy a fix as people think it might be they're in the worst possible position because yes, there are clear aerodynamic problems that they need to fix. However, there is a literal time limit to when they can fix these these power unit problems because the engine freeze has come in for some components. It hasn't come in for all of them. However, that's later this year. That's really not far away in terms of Formula One, especially if there's such a glaring horsepower deficit after the move to E-turn fuel. Um, you know, Mercedes car being overweight, the, the Venturi clearly having problems, the side pod design, which at least so far hasn't achieved any of the successes they may have hoped for. That honestly may all need to be put on the back burner, especially with, as Dylan said, the budget cap constraints, because the fates of Mercedes, McLaren in the short term, and potentially Aston Martin and Williams as well, come down to this at the moment underperforming powertrain. Uh, again, I'm I said after Bahrain, it can't be the powertrain. I know all of them are slow, but it can't be the It is. Hmm. That is a fundamental problem that they need to get their way out of very, very quickly because if they don't, they quite literally can't owing to the sporting regulations. 
Yeah, and that's gonna that that's a position Mercedes haven't found found themselves. I mean, didn't th- th- this? The thing is, Mercedes we know have been literally in the last few seasons designing their cars and designing their aerodynamics based upon the fact that they knew they're going to be out front. They're going to be the team to beat. So why bother designing a car that can follow in traffic? Which is why so many times Mercedes cars have been terrible following in traffic. It may be to an extent why Valtteri Bottas was struggling so much last season. Do you think that not just from the powertrain side of things, but certainly from the aerodynamic side of things as well, if Mercedes haven't designed the car with this situation in mind, these fixes aren't going to be easy for them this season and may not be as easy to fix as we were suggesting last time out for 2023, for 2024, going on from that. Well, I'm not sure it's necessarily down to sort of where they've designed the car to be in the pack. I think it's more they've got this aero package and this sort of car power unit aside, but they don't know. I I find it difficult to believe that such an operation and such an outfit has designed a fundamentally bad car. I think they're just unsure how to unlock the pace. So maybe we'll see improvements at the end of the year, but like you said, there's other pressing concerns that come into this as well. Well, there's other pressing concerns, and one pressing concern could be the drivers. Lewis Hamilton was ahead consistently of George Russell in Bahrain, but it was a complete reversal last time out in Jeddah. George Russell looked far more comfortable in that car, of course, finishing in fifth in the end, Lewis Hamilton down in 10th. We were all saying before the start of the season, George Russell's going to do well, but he's not going to beat Lewis Hamilton. He's not going to have anything really on him that Lewis will be the one who's far out by the end of the season. The experience will tell. Lewis Hamilton after Jeddah, I've, I've, I've seen him. He's had difficult weekends before and he's been, you know, demotivated, but he's come back. And he's had, particularly in the Mercedes era, you know, he's come back and he's won the next race and that's been absolutely fine. But with George Russell now as his teammate, certainly setting his stall out early. And I think George Russell, you know, doing what he needed to do in Jeddah to finish best of the rest is in many ways something that I would say is potentially more threatening to Lewis Hamilton because he's got a teammate who can consistently put the car in that position and can consistently deliver and get the most out of it. So if Lewis Hamilton has more weekends like this, and George Russell is as consistent as he's been, you know that's not going to be something Lewis Hamilton is going to want to confront by the end of the season. I mean, is is this just maybe? I mean, Dylan, do you think this is me just being a little bit alarmist, almost that George Russell, you know, getting ahead of Lewis now in the championship? Do do you think we're starting to see him look a lot more comfortable in the car than Lewis Hamilton, and the impact that that could have on the team going forward? I'm not sure it's completely alarmist. Like you say, I think that it's you can't have that sort of gap. I think Joe said it was seven tenths in qualifying. That's a huge gap. Mm. I don't think if you look at between any of the other teammates that such a gap is sort of there or easily explained away in the same sense that Lewis Hamilton just wasn't good enough this weekend. And when you've got a teammate finishing in fifth and you're struggling life and limb to get to 10th out of 13 cars it's not good enough and I think that unless Lewis Hamilton comes back with some strong performances in these next races there's going to be serious questions and it can't just be down to George Russell hitting the ground running slightly better and adapting to the new style of car slightly quicker. I mean do you think Joe maybe there's some there is a post 2021 hangover that maybe 
Lewis Hamilton's motivation may not still be where it needs to be? Or do you think, you know, George Russell is just the better driver settling in more with the car at the moment? Because certainly, as we saw with, you know, Danny Ricciardo coming into Red Bull and unseating Sebastian Vettel, almost Charles Leclerc doing the same at Ferrari, these young drivers come into seats and can very quickly, it seems, take over, not necessarily not take over the team and become the number one driver, but certainly take over the momentum. And there's an expectation that George Russell will do that eventually, but we weren't certainly expecting it so quickly. If you're Lewis Hamilton right now, should you be alarmed at the fact your teammate is getting so much more out of the car than you are? Um, you shouldn't be unless it continues for the next couple of rounds, and especially if it continues when these new components mm. come in. We're expecting Imola because that's when the European leg starts. Um, there is, although it sounds odd to say, some solace to be taken in the fact that that is Lewis Hamilton's worst Mercedes Grand Prix weekend by a country mile. Like Monaco last year is nothing by comparison to Jeddah last weekend. That is handily his worst probably his worst gp weekend since about 2011 which is the worst season of his career in general so it's it's reasonable to assume he's not going to fall into that form again he was actually bloody good in bahrain let's not forget and Hmm. george russell for as well as he started and as well as he came back george russell had a qualifying stinker in bahrain as well granted his q2 lap was significantly quicker but when he needed to be mr saturday in q3 he wasn't. He was a mile behind Lewis and indeed Valtteri Bottas rather hilariously. So yeah, take solace from that, Lewis. But there is a genuine cause for concern in the case that these cars, in terms of how the weight's distributed with the heavier wheels, the increased weight of the cars in general, the slow, the fact that it's really difficult to brake and turn in at the same time versus last year's cars, they're fundamentally different. It is not out of the realms of possibility at all that George Russell has adapted to this car quicker than Lewis Hamilton has. And of course, at least in 2009, when you could arguably say Lewis Hamilton was in a somewhat comparable situation, given the fact, you know, he's struggling to get out of Q1. There is just such this big deficit. At least it was a general team-wide problem that Heike Kovalainen was at least doing consistently worse than him in that McLaren. And when the McLaren came good, Lewis Hamilton came to the front of the grid. Now, if that Mercedes comes good, I genuinely believe George Russell will be up there based on what we've seen so far. And again, George Russell is a far more formidable teammate than Heike Kovalainen ever was. And I think that's going to be very exciting. Um, We've talked about Mercedes and we've talked about the powertrain. So we kind of have to mention the other teams affected affected by the issues that, that are with the powertrain. McLaren, Aston Martin and Williams, who certainly in the case of Williams, you could argue are basically where they've been for the last few seasons, but they've fallen behind the other teams comparable to them in Aston Martin, it's in Alfa Romeo and in Haas. But certainly Aston Martin and certainly McLaren find themselves in territory they've not been used to for the last few seasons, being right at the back of the grid. But there's some solace, potentially. Daniel Ricciardo was saying earlier this week in the press conference that he genuinely believes that when McLaren's time will, he says McLaren's time could come by the end of the season and it would not surprise him if McLaren ran won a race this year. Now, I don't know whether that'd be out of pure pace, whether that would be out of significant crashes at the front and a race where pretty much every front runner's taken out and McLaren somehow come through in sort of Olivier Panis Monaco 1996 style. But do you think that, we again, 2009 I think is a good season in some ways to compare this to 
major aerodynamic regulation changes, a lot of potential for upgrades. And you just see that particularly the upgrades that McLaren bought, that the McLaren that raced at that 2009 British Grand Prix, the one that went to Nürburgring the week later was totally different, going from effectively right at the back of the grid to right at the front of the grid, at least in Lewis Hamilton's hands. So do you think we're maybe too quick to write off Mercedes and Mercedes powertrain cars at the moment? Or do you think the fact the issues aren't just aerodynamic, but located in the powertrain as well, is a much greater cause for concern? And what Daniel Ricciardo has said is just a little bit of baloney in that sense. Joe, let's come to you first. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. One thing I would say is that whether or not they can develop their way out of this and bring a fundamentally different car in the second half of the season, I mean, it's all about budget constraints. You bringing me, bringing us back to that era of the late noughties, you reminded me of Spygate and the fact that McLaren's fine was $100 million. Well, inflation adjusted, that's basically the entire budget cap of today. So if they can, you know, if they can snot and pay a hundred million that 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 long ago, then yeah, that, if that means that they would be willing to spend considerably more than that to develop their way out of the hole they found themselves in in two thousand nine, that just isn't an option anymore. And again, they are hamstrung by that Mercedes power unit. I tell you what, if you want to look at a common factor with defective power units in the last few years, McLaren signing on is a pretty solid sign that your power <laughs> units have. Think about it. McLaren, Honda came back. Yeah, zero true. packaging, doomed Honda to failure. They moved to Renault. They slid further and further back, despite the fact they were the better customer team. They sign up with Mercedes. The moment the technical regulations change, Mercedes have at best the third best power unit. McLaren signing on for your power unit as a customer team is the death knell for your power unit. So yeah, maybe McLaren are the voodoo to blame in all of this. Um, but... <laughs> This is a critical year for Daniel Ricciardo, though. I discovered recently that he's actually signed up for another year after this one. But I do not believe for a second that Mercedes, that McLaren would hesitate to terminate his contract if he doesn't improve. Jeddah, he looked a lot better than we were expecting, um, but he needs to be a hell of a lot better than last year if he wants to see all three of the three years of that contract through. Yeah, certainly I would say perhaps not only Mercedes, but Daniel Ricciardo. As well, ever since he's left Red Bull, he's certainly not had the rub of the green in that sense. Dylan, I mean, do you think Daniel Ricciardo is right? McLaren and him could win a race later this season, or are the issues with Mercedes and Mercedes power cars just too insurmountable? Well, I think it's not unlikely in the sense that there's always a small chance of anything happening after the five red lights go out, but I think it's so negligible that it just seems naive at the moment with the cars that are in front of them. And I I don't know. I think he has to not worry about winning races, but just finishing, finishing them in the top 10 first and getting anywhere near Norris at the moment because he's typically been good at Albert Park, so it'll be interesting to see where the season takes us there. But again, it's he just hasn't performed since he's left Red Bull. There's been an odd couple of good performances, but nothing like we saw beforehand. Well, I, I, I don't know who is the voodoo here. Mercedes, Daniel Ricciardo. You could even probably blame Fernando Alonso in this. There's probably some long-term line of collect connection that we can blame him for. Well, Saudi Arabian Grand Prix certainly left us with a lot to talk about on track with all of the battles that we're looking forward to. I think it's going to be, it was going to be, a, I think, a really interesting story. And of course, Albert Park, a completely different track to the Jeddah Corniche circuit. It's a street circuit. But the downfall setup is completely different. 
and of course there's some new developments there as well we're going to be moving away from saudi arabia now we're going to be talking about the land down under and f1's return to albert park next If I wasn't restricted by the fact that I have to pay royalties for music, I would have been blurting out Land Down Under right now because Formula One is going back to Melbourne. And I'm very excited. I mean, it's always, I know maybe whether it's just a little bit of Melbourne always being the race that starts the season, you get the excitement about that. But considering you not had the track for the last couple of years, I know the racing's not always been the best in Melbourne, but... 2022 promises, I think, to be a very good Australian Grand Prix for a few reasons. But the most important reason, I would say, is the fact we get to see some changes to the Albert Park circuit that have, according to Andrew Westacott and all of the team who spent the whole last year on YouTube massively promoting these changes, these are changes that, from what we understand, are supposed to massively improve the racing in Albert Park. So, Let's just kind of run through some of these changes now, what they've been designed to do. And again, the most important thing, of course, obviously we've had the wider cars in the last few seasons and obviously in a lot of narrower circuits like Albert Park, overtaking has not been something that has necessarily been the easiest thing to do. The plan with these changes in many ways to widen the track, firstly to, to create more lines going through a lot of corners, but also, again, the regulations from what we've seen so far have helped cars following behind to stay closer these changes we understand are going to make that even easier so let's just run through the changes at albert park so firstly going into the first corner the track has been widened by two and a half meters again create more racing lines going through the corner and allow for more racing going into turn three that itself has been um, extended as well again a further four meters sort of moving inwards towards the barrier again the plan with that, more lines going through the corner, potentially tighter inside line as well, which will be really interesting to see drivers take that line, potentially pushing drivers off the track going through turn three. It's the same point onto that, but turn six, this is what um, the F1 page has said is one of the bigger changes. Um, Seven and a half metres, that corner has been widened on the outside of the track. The apex has almost changed. It's sort of moved from almost like, uh, I was trying to describe it, almost like a sort of a, uh, it's basically been turned into a right, almost like a 90 degree right, almost turn six now, rather than a, a sort uh, the way to describe it, it's kind of coming into the corner and it sort of rounds off a little bit like a 180. This is almost now like a 90 degree right. Again, more lines. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. They reckon cars could go through there around about sort of 45 miles an hour faster, which I think will be really interesting. See now, the most visible change to the track for drivers who know the Albert Park circuit is going through um, out of the was the old nine and ten has now been basically changed into one long straight. Effectively, the cars, instead of the braking zone into turn nine, and then the left hand kink going into the section around the lake has just been turned into actually one long straight. The drivers going through that driving effectively a fast right hand kink into a left into that sort of long left hander. This is all one DRS zone, by the way, and going into the chicane of 11 and 12, or should we now say turn 9 and 10. Um, the curves have been reprofiled there. It's expected to be taken significantly faster now. Going out of that, of course, down to turn 13. Again, one of the other bigger changes, I think if you don't necessarily see the width of the track widening, this is quite a big change. Turn 13, a much heavier braking zone, a much more acute angle now going through that corner as the car sort of turns a sharper, a more acute right, 
before a slight left-hand kink coming out of that. Again, heavier braking zone, more lines, hopefully more overtaking going into that corner as well. And then pretty much the same. They have um, widened the pit lane as well, so potentially faster pit lane as well. And of course, one of the things we've seen with safety cars coming out in the past, um, strategy in Melbourne has always been something big, but with a faster pit lane, that could open up more um, opportunities for different strategies, which will be very interesting to see. And on top of that as well, four DRS zones this weekend. The first time we've ever seen that at a race. So just your thoughts before we maybe dissect some of these changes. That's just a general overview. But Joe, certainly from what you've seen from the changes at Albert Park, are you excited with what we've got this season? I'd be able to give you a definitive answer if I'd been able to try it in the simulator. However, Assetto Corsa's modding scene has decided to be quiet this for this weekend and no others, it seems. So as of now, I've not been able to drive around it myself. Look, I'm an Albert Park defender. I always have been. I think it's literally the only track in Australia that can host the Australian Grand Prix that we need to have. And what I don't understand is that they've brought in this new technical regulation that's designed to prov- you know, promote more overtaking, but then they've changed the track so that there's actually no way of comparing the old era to the new era and they can advertise the progress from it. I really don't think that the old Albert Park would have been so difficult to overtake on with these new cars. As I've said already, we've had a good race around Jeddah in these new cars. I think we could have a good one around Albert Park in no small part because a lot of the bad races we've had at Albert Park have been as a direct result of being the opening race of the season. Teams have had low amounts of testing time. They're running low on power, not taking too many risks. Year after year, in the middle of the last decade, that was what Australian Grand Prix were like. So I'm not overly hostile to the changes. If they make the racing more exciting, it's certainly in line with what Liberty have been doing thus far in their ownership. I just don't think they were necessary. That is, however, as you know, informed by the fact that I really like the old Albert Park and I just don't want them to ruin it. Yeah, I think something important, obviously, we could have had that comparison had the race gone ahead in 2021. Of course, COVID and the restrictions in Australia kind of stopped that from happening. But again, Albert Park's always a fun circuit. And actually, whenever Albert Park has not hosted the first race of the season, so in 2006 and 2010, they both ended up being very good races in both seasons. Of course, 2006, the four safety cars, a lot of drama, Jensen Button's pole position and blowing up out of that final corner and then of course 2010 the strategy Jensen Button coming through perfectly timing that pit stop in 2010 switching onto the dry tyres a very good race indeed from him so yeah maybe the fact it's not the opening race adds to a bit of the excitement as well Dylan your thoughts you've seen the changes what are you looking forward to from it I think the speed going into turns I think it's the new turn 9 and 10 new turn 9 and 10 yeah and I don't know, the fact that they're running DRS all along that sort of curve there could be an interesting one. But like you said, they really have chucked everything at this track to try and make it better. But like Joe said, maybe it's too much, but I'm I'm not sure. I'm excited to see it. I'm genuinely genuinely excited for a race at Albert Park, which is uh, something it needed rejuvenating. I think the last time we came here on track overtakes were in the single figures and mm. it, it just wasn't, you know, a race that, could be looked forward to for the racing itself. So I'm looking forward to that this weekend. Well, let's talk about these four DRS zones this weekend. And I think actually the thing that I'm interested most about the four DRS zones and not the fact there's four of them. So along the pitch straight from turn three down to turn four, that whole section kind of going from turn eight through to the new turn nine. 
plus as well then going out of turn 10 down to turn 11. So they're all the DRS zones. But there's crucially two detection points. There's one detection point, as has always been coming into... I've got to count now. What was the old turn 15? I think is now turn 13, the penultimate corner. There's your first DRS detection line. That covers you for both the pitch straight and coming out turn two down to turn three. You've then got the second DRS detection point just at turn six, which then follows through from turn eight, and you've got it all the way to turn 11. Now, one of the things we've seen recently, and again, this was the thing with um, the DRS zones that we were seeing in Saudi Arabia and we're seeing in Bahrain, DRS zones one after another with different detection points. Effectively, you take the lead at one, you'll then get repass going into the second zone straight after. That was the whole thing with Verstappen and Leclerc in both races. And certainly the whole gamesmanship we were discussing with that DRS detection point in Jeddah was in many ways motivated by that. Now, the detection points, it almost seems have existed to stop that happening in Albert Park. So, Dylan, I mean, when you look at that, I don't know, do you think that these were perhaps as a direct reaction to what we've seen in Bahrain, to what we've seen in Jeddah? Or do you think maybe that this is going to be something with, you know, the track supposed to improve racing as well, that, you know, you could have a situation where someone takes a lead and has the opportunity maybe to build that second gap going around to the second DRS zone if they're unable to do it. Well, it's going to be cat and mouse for the rest of the lap. Do you think there's something like that coming I from it? I think maybe looking at it as four DRS zones is slightly misleading. I think maybe two zones with a breaking breaking point mm. in the middle of each could be a better way of looking at, at it, especially with the two detection, detection points, like you say. And I think we are going to see something very similar. We're going to see some breaking for the line or some tactical sort of not upshifting at the end of a straight. So we, so our drivers like Leclerc and Verstappen can get their DRS and chase down their rivals. But um, I think it's going to be key to figure out which, which of those um, DRS zones can best line up and overtake. And the driver that figures that out first in the race is going to have a distinct advantage like we saw with Leclerc in Bahrain. Yeah. And I think something that's always been really interesting with this season in particular, is that DRS has been very powerful, but the slipstream as well, we've noticed in the first couple of races, slipstream has also been quite powerful as well, almost not negating the effect of the DRS, but certainly can give the driver behind still quite a lot of an advantage. And again, probably coming from the fact it's a lot easier to follow cars as well. So Joe, do you think that these four DRS zones, do you think maybe it's not as big a story? as people are saying that, it, that this whole slipstream, the fact it's easier to follow the cars now, almost somewhat nullifies that. I mean, it. it's very funny that in the wake of the new track plan being revealed and the four DRS zones, we're now seeing, at least from some prominent YouTubers, discussions of whether it's time to just get rid of DRS altogether mm. on account of the fact that DRS was only designed in truth to negate the fact that there was no overtaking with the formula of cars post sort of 2007 and of course they got worse in the last few years four drs zones now seems pretty crazy i would be prepared to sack off especially well the third drs zone because as dylan said it goes around a corner those two things don't normally go well together and then the fourth out of what is now the 9 10 left right chicane however as you say the end of that straight is now it's, it's become so much more of a breaking zone so much sharper of a corner and wider as well 
that it actually makes a lot more sense to have it now. It, yeah, it, it's another one of those things. It just feels kind of unnecessary to me, but also there's no clear excuse to get rid of that DRS zone. Like if you can get three DRS zones out of Jeddah, you can definitely get four out of this new Albert Park. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I wonder how much longer we're going to have to endure DRS, which enjoyable though it can be, has often felt like a bit of a gimmick. Yeah, and I think the thing with DRS as well is that DRS was only there to make an overtake easier. It wasn't there originally designed to completely overtake. Too many times it's felt like it's coming to completely overtake. So whether we're going to have a Turkey 2011 where it seems every time you use a DRS, an overtake's going to happen from wherever you are within that second gap, you know, it may just literally be the world's craziest catamounts, everyone changing positions every two seconds and trying to follow the race is going to be an absolute nightmare. And if you're getting up at 5am trying to follow the race like that, good luck to you. That's all I will say. Um, something else that's quite interesting and it's not really been talked about is the pit lane. So the pit lane's been widened. Of course, it always traditionally at Albert Park has had one of the slower pit lane speeds of 60 kilometers an hour. It's now been widened enough to the effect that the speed limit is now 80 kilometers an hour akin to most other tracks on the calendar one of the most interesting things about this and we've all melbourne has always and maybe it's just the fact it's been the first race of the season so the one area that teams like to experiment most is with strategy but melbourne's always been a place where we've seen drivers pull off one stops we've seen drivers pull off three stops and sort of away from the traditional two um do you think that we could see teams get a bit more excitable with the strategy i'm thinking maybe Red Bull with Sergio Perez seeing as he always has a habit of running very long stints in Melbourne and benefiting a lot from that. Do you think we could see, particularly with safety cars normally being a factor that comes into consideration in Melbourne as well, sort of teams moving between two stops, maybe three stops as well, especially if there's a faster slap point in with that as well. Dylan, is do you think strategy is going to become more important now with this pit lane expansion? I think important may be the wrong sort of wrong approach. I think the amount of new factors that have been hit uh, are hitting the teams this weekend in Albert Park, I think just treat it as a new race. Uh, they'll obviously have their simulations to work out what's going to be the quickest, but there's a lot of unknowns, about as many as when you go to a new track. So I I really couldn't tell you, I think, on that. I think there's so many unpredictabilities, not already with the fact that you have the 2022 cars as well, but the fact you have this new track and all of the changes as well. I think it's going to be exciting. Um, Joe, we've got an unusual set of tyre compounds. This is what has just cut. This is what the F1 website is saying. So we have the C2, the C3, and the C5. So no C4 coming to this weekend. It's not like it's going up consecutively now. This C5 tyre, do you think that maybe the teams are going to see this as a qualifying tyre? Do you think that there is... Because I could see... Well, I could see this going two ways. I could see C5 being the tyre that's only used in qualifying and teams literally just running on C3s and C2s for the entire race unless they want to go for a fastest lap point or it's a safety car comes out on like lap 49 or something and it comes back in lap 53, 54. So you use a C5 for a final stint there. Or do you think it could be that it may be teams out front, maybe the Red Bull and Ferrari will try to build a lead up early with a C5, hope for an early safety car that means that they can sort of chuck the tyre off around lap six or seven. What Do you think that that step up, missing out the C4, do you think that could have a big impact on strategy this weekend? 
I can only assume so, and I'm glad that you've brought this up because I had seen this and then kind of forgot about the fact that we were skipping the C4 compound, and I'm glad you also haven't asked me to explain it because I can't understand and explain <laughs> it on the part of Pirelli. So, I don't know, I'm worried that it might just, it might railroad the teams into maybe starting on C3s and finishing on C2s, which will be the white wall hard tyre for the weekend. Um, it's impossible to know until we go to the track because I suspect it might be marginally less intensive on tyres than the last Albert Park layout was. But then again, Albert Park's never exactly been a tyre killer anyway. So I'm not sure. Um, It's just worth pointing out that, you know, the pit lane speed limit change, that is, of course, in tune with all the other changes to the track, which we're expecting will take a couple seconds, maybe even a few seconds off the lap time. So as Dylan said, I'm not sure if it's important or just, you know, as another factor along with, as it turns out, what Pirelli have decided to do with the tyres this weekend. I would not be surprised, though, if not a single team started on C5s. There's so much unpredictability this weekend. It's basically a metaphor for the 2022 season, which I, I think that's very exciting indeed. Well, I know unpredictability is one thing, but we're going to try and predict our way through the unpredictability next. Stick around. All of those still to come. Well, it's time to predict our way through the unpredictability now. Um, of course, going to Australia for the first time um, this in, in three years. A welcome return to Albert Park, I would say. Also, um, for the first time this weekend, a return to, for Sebastian Vettel coming into the Aston Martin for the first time this season. Of course, great to see he's recovered from coronavirus and back in the car. Holcomb back. Well, he's back to not driving the car anymore maybe maybe this is the last we'll see of Nico Hülkenberg we don't know whether he will come back who knows he may he may find himself driving again in 2022 such as the madness and the unpredictability of the season also um welcome to the grid to Eduardo Freitas as well his first race as race director this weekend in the meantime though um we've got a season to predict we've got a race to predict so going into bar uh, going into Australia even Charles Leclerc Top of the championship, a 12-point gap over his teammate Carlos Sainz, 20 points ahead of Max Verstappen, of course, with Verstappen's retirement in Bahrain. Um, Ferrari way out ahead in the Constructors' Championship on 78 points. Mercedes second on 38, Red Bull one behind on 37. But, of course, what happens in Bahrain heavily affecting that. Um, predictions last time out, Joe. Um, do, do, do you remember yours from, from Saudi Arabia? Well, I said Lewis Hamilton was going to finish on the podium, so I don't think I want to the <laughs> So you went, so you went pole for Max Verstappen, Leclerc to win Verstappen second, Hamilton third. So genuine goose egg on all fronts. And pre- yeah. predicting Verstappen for pole as well. He was the only one of the top four who had a genuinely disappointing lap. All I will say, I think Rory is totally discounted. Rory claimed to me that he, six DNFs, is something he should get credit for. It was seven in the end, Rory, so I'm not going to give you that. Um, but he went for a Ferrari one to him, K-Mag on the podium. So I'm not going to I'm not gonna honour that. But, so I went for Schappen victory. I also had Sainz in second and Gasly third in the Leclerc pole. So I think overall, Joe, I think I'm going to have to give us a half point each for our measly predictions in Jeddah that were somewhat right in some case. So out, out of the prediction so far, you're still ahead, Joe, 1.5. I'm on half a point. Let's see if we can do better this time out. So I'm going to go first. 
with my predictions. I'm going to set the scene and I'm going to, I want to hear you guys thoughts. So I'm going for a Max Verstappen poll. I think he is the quickest driver this season. I think Jeddah did prove that to us. Sure, he didn't have a great qualifying lap, but I think he'll be hungry to get on the boards and have a good lap this time out in Australia. Is the track Verstappen's done all right at in the past as well? He has had a, I mean, records at Albert Park aren't easy to attain because it normally is the first race in the season, but I think he's going to grab pole. I think he's going to convert that into victory. I'm backing Sergio Perez to get second, partly because I think, I think there's going to be safety cars. I think there's going to be a lot of strategy coming into this. But I think most, most of the field will be on two stops, maybe three stops. I think Sergio Perez could do what he always does in Melbourne, run a two-stop, run a run-stop even. And then it could be a situation I see Perez being out front with the one-stop and safety cars coming into effect, Verstappen then overtaking him. And I reckon he will then hold off Leclerc to finish ahead of him with Leclerc in third. So I'm going Max Verstappen pole. Verstappen to then convert that into victory. Sergio Perez in second. Charles Leclerc in third. So the first one-two of the season for Red Bull. Dylan, let's come to you now. What are you predicting this weekend? I think for pole, I'm going to I'm gonna disagree and I'm going to say Leclerc's going to take it. Because I'm not, I'm not convinced the jury's out that Verstappen is the fastest driver in the current... I mean, Leclerc is certainly a good qualifier. I mean, that is something, I guess to bring in of course yeah so i i think i'm gonna stick with it as well ferrari have had some good runs in the recent races in albert park so i think i'm gonna stick with leclerc for the win followed by verstappen and then Sainz. because so i, I don't think a very think, i don't think that the tires are going to be as big a factor i think if they're running drs for most of the lap on the way around and running very close to the cars in front they're going to burn through them very quickly hmm so Might be if there is anyone to keep the tyres going, Sergio Perez is yeah. is the man to do that. <laughs> that is true. And I think you... I'm going to throw out another another prediction. I think Ricardo will be in the points. Ricciardo for points and Schumacher too. Well, again, Mick Schumacher's first points in Formula One that would be very good indeed. And I think certainly after the difficulties that Danny Rick has had so far this season to come home and take some points. I mean, his record in Australia. I would say mixed, more the fact that the race he got on the podium, he got disqualified from, and his first race for Renault, his front wing basically blew up as soon as he left the starting line. So continuing the good record of Australians doing very well in their home Grand Prix. Um, to be fair, Rory wasn't far off. Rory has sent me some predictions in absentia. So he's gone for Mick Schumacher to get his first points this weekend, but he has gone. He didn't send me pole position, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume he says Charles Leclerc because he always does. But he's gone. Max Verstappen pole, Charles Leclerc second, Carlos Sainz third. So in many ways, very exactly the same as you, Dylan, but swapping around Leclerc and Verstappen. So I think that's going to be very, very interesting to see out of the two of them. Whether it is, though, Leclerc and Verstappen out front, or as we were saying earlier, this could be the weekend that Sainz and Perez come back into it. Joe, your predictions, please. I'll try and be quick and I'm, fl I'm flip-flopping as we go. So this is going to be entirely spontaneous. Pole position, Max Verstappen. The win, Charles Leclerc. Second, Max Verstappen. Third, Sergio Perez. Miscellaneous prediction. We are only, we will get no more than one DNF this weekend. 
I think this is going to be a race of low attrition because 2022 is unpredictable and Australia is traditionally a race of high attrition. So opposites attract. Um, Sorry, I was just slightly sad because I looked at the last time we raced in Australia and it reminded me that Pierre Gasly went out in Q1 in a Red Bull and it made me slightly sad. But yeah, uh, Alpha Tauri are going to have a pretty poor weekend, I reckon, because they've got the eighth fastest car, let's be honest. Well, such a long time ago that was indeed. Um, I'm going to throw one miscellaneous prediction out there quickly. Two teams so far haven't scored points, those being Aston Martin and Williams. And I'm I'm feeling a race of attrition this weekend. So Aston Martin and Williams will score their first points this weekend. And it means that we will have every team scoring points this season. I believe for the first time since 2019, and only because the 2019 German Grand Prix was a high race of attrition and Alfa Romeo don't know how to set up rear wings. Um, In the meantime, though, plenty to look forward to in Albert Park this weekend. Of course, this episode as well, coming out on Friday as well, of course, the day before we normally go out. But just because, again, you've got to set your alarms early, Saturday morning qualifying, Sunday morning for the race as well. It's going to be an exciting Grand Prix. We will be back in two weeks' time to review all of that and look ahead to Formula One's return to Europe as we go back to Emilia-Romagna, we go back to Imola, and we can, we can for the first time on the Armchair F1 podcast, embrace Joe Spagnoli's spiritual home of racing. And I'm looking forward to that, indeed. In the meantime, Joe, Dylan, thank you so much for coming on this week, and thank you as well for tuning in. You've been listening to the Armchair F1 podcast. Like, follow, subscribe across all major streaming platforms, and on social media as well. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Enjoy the race, and thanks very much for tuning in. Bye.